ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so we were discussing this chapter which was mentioning the ayah or the section that we got to was regarding the ayah hatta idha fuzzi'a an qulubihim until when that fear it exits from them and that calmness returns to them remember the context of this was when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks with the revelation in the heavens, speaks in the heavens that the tremendous impact of that when the angels hear it, they fall unconscious and then when that fear, that, that fright, that fear, that feeling finally comes in them then they say to each other or in one narration as it mentions they say to Jibreel Mada qala rabbukum or rabbuka what did your lord say and then he says or they say qalul haq al-haq that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has spoken the truth wa huwa al-aliyyul kabir so, حَتَّى إِذَا فُزِّعَ عَنْ قُلُوبِهِمْ أَيْزَالَ عَنْهُمُ الْفَزَعْ قَالُوا مَاذَا قَالَ رَبُّكُمْ مَا اسْمُ استفهام وَذَا بِمَعْنَ الَّذِي أَيْ مَا الَّذِي قَالَ رَبُّكُمْ So then they say, what did your Lord say? قَالُوا الْحَقِّ They say the truth, that Allah spoke the truth. قَالُوا الْحَقِّ وَهُوَ الْعَلِيُّ الْكَبِيرِ He spoke the truth, they say, it is the truth, and he is Al-Ali, the most high, Al-Kabir, the greatest. Al-Aliyu bithatihi wa sifatihi, عُلُوُّ الصِّفَاتِ مُتَّفَقٌ عَلَيْهِ بَيْنَ أَهْلِ الْقِبْلَةِ حتى أهل البدع يثبتون لله علو الصفات على حسب مفهومهم في علو الصفة. So Allah being the most high, in the books of Aqeedah they'll mention that Allah being the most high has three different meanings behind it. Allah being the most high is from three perspectives. What are those three perspectives of the highness of Allah? One is obvious. Well, the most obvious that Allah is the most high. So Allah in his that, in his essence, Allah is the most high. Because he is above all of the creation. 
above all of the seven heavens and all of the creation, above the throne. And the throne we know is the ceiling of creation and Allah is above that. So Allah being the most high, then obviously Allah himself being the most high in his essence. Then also the highness of Allah in terms of his attributes. That the, the names and the attributes of Allah are the most perfect and uh, greatest names and attributes. They are at the pinnacle. They are at the pinnacle of their perfection and their beauty. So Allah is the most high in terms of his names and attributes. And the third, the third, Ulul Qadr, meaning what? What do you mean? They have another word sometimes they use. Maybe that's the meaning you're saying as well. Instead of Ulul Qadr, they sometimes say Ulul Qudra, they mention it, you're right. But Ulul Qahr. That Allah is the most high in his, in his power, his ability, his might and majesty. That Allah is the most high in his power over all of creation, his might, his majesty. Allah is the most high in that regard. So that is true, that is correct. Here the Shaykh, he says, Shaykh al-Thaymeen, العلي بذاته وصفاته وعلو الصفات متفق عليه بين أهل القبلة that Allah is the most high in his essence and in his attributes and that is something agreed upon by all of the Muslims even the people of innovation upon their understanding of the attributes that they affirm they will say that they are the most high uh, and the most uh, greatest of attributes. لأنهم قد يقولون إن في هذا علو إن في هذا علو صفة وهي نقص فقولهم مثلا إن الله تعالى لا تقوم به الحوادث ولا يستطيع أن ينزل أن ينزل ولا يستطيع أن يستوي على العرش وما أشبه ذلك يرون أن هذا من باب الكمال ألا تقوم به الحوادث. As a consequence of the people of innovation sometimes misunderstanding how to implement something, they go astray. So even on this occasion, in their misunderstanding of how to understand the highness of Allah in terms of his attributes, etc., they began to negate certain things from Allah saying that if you affirm them, it would be a deficiency in His Highness. A better example, or uh, not better, but an easier example to understand from something we've studied already about the names and attributes of Allah, the two main groups of people of deviation when it comes to the names and attributes of Allah 
did so based upon initially, initially and originally a sound principle of the religion. So the two main groups overall. Pasat YG 62 WKM. Where are you? YG 62 WKM. Ah, okay. Anybody? No takers here? So if the sisters are aware, a Pasata. Pasat YG 62 WKM. That needs to be moved, it's blocking the car park. So here, the example about the two groups of innovation who went astray, the two main overall categories, the Mushabbiha and the Mu'attila, those who reject the names and attributes of Allah, and those who affirm them, but to the level of resembling them to creation. Two sides of the story in the deviation. Both of them deviated initially based upon a sound principle. The Mu'attila, they began by saying, we cannot make resemblance of Allah to creation, we must make the tanzih of Allah from any resemblance to anything. Correct or not? Absolutely, we cannot compare Allah to anything in creation. We cannot make resemblance, we cannot make similarity. Absolutely. But then they said, how can we do that then in a watertight manner? Whereby we are absolutely certain we are definitely not making any tamfil or tashbih between Allah and creation. They said the easy way, we do not affirm these attributes to Allah in the first place. Because if you don't affirm the attributes to Allah in the first place, then there's nothing there for you to make any possibility of resemblance or comparison. You're not affirming the attributes in the first place. Because if you affirm the hand of Allah, now they say the door opens up to comparison with our hands and the hands of creation. The door opens up to that. You say the, the eyes of Allah, the, the face of Allah, whatever attribute you affirm, you are now opening up a potential, a possibility of resemblance occurring down the road. So they said to close that door from the very beginning, we don't affirm the attributes. By not affirming them, there's nothing there to ever open up a door to any type of resemblance. You cannot make any resemblance of the hand of Allah to the creation of Allah if you don't affirm the hand of Allah in the first place. So... Upon the principle of saying we cannot compare Allah to creation, they took it so far to such an extreme, they said the only way we can make that watertight is by rejecting the attributes. That way there is no door left to be opened. However, what they didn't realize, as Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, 
rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned, is by doing that, they fell into exactly that. And they did make a comparison and a resemblance between Allah and creation. How so? Because they compared Allah to nothingness. They now said Allah has no names or attributes. Rejected all of them. Ta'atil of all of them. So now as far as they are concerned, if you ask them about Allah, no names, no attributes. Therefore, something which has no names or attributes, no descriptions is nothing. Ibn Taymiyyah said you worship nothingness. You have made Allah into nothingness. On the other side, the mushabbiha began with a sound principle, which is that we must affirm the attributes. Allah's mentioned these names and attributes in the Quran. We must affirm them. True? Absolutely. We cannot do what the Mu'attila did rejecting them. We must affirm them. But they took their level of affirmation from that sound principle to start with to such a level whereby they began making resemblances in their affirmation. Saying that Allah would only address us with things that we can understand. If Allah mentions these attributes of hands and eyes and face, then it must be in a way that we can comprehend. So they took it to the level of comprehension whereby they began imagining and comparing to creation. So that was examples of how the people of innovation may begin with something sound, but then they deviate not recognizing how and where the limits are in understanding those principles those qawaid and that is similar to what you may call the different types of innovation because innovation you could say is two types in one categorization of it you have innovation which is innovation from the very basis innovation from the very basis Something completely brand new just made up into the religion as an act of worship. Non-existent, no basis to it. Innovation. But then there is another type of innovation in relation to the discussion we've just been having about the people of innovation. That they may start on a sound principle but then deviate away not knowing how to implement it. What is the second type of innovation known as? Bid'a shari'iyah, mashallah. So they call it bid'a idhafiyah. Whereby you start off with something that does have a basis. It is established. For example, dhikr. You may have a certain dua that is proven in the sunnah that you're supposed to make this dua. A certain type of dhikr. That is mentioned in the sunnah authentic, you're supposed to do this dhikr. But then somebody comes along and says, okay, that dhikr there, that supplication, that dua, it's a good dua, has nice meanings to it. I'm going to read it seven times after every fajr, 
and seven times after every asr every day. He has now taken something with a basis and has now specified it to a number, specified it to a time. By specifying the number and specifying the time onto something which was just left open without such a specification of time or number, now that person has created an innovation onto this dua or dhikr which was in its basis authentic. But it wasn't authentic to do it seven times. It wasn't authentic that it's after every fajr and every asr. Those times weren't established. Those numbers weren't established. You've made up those times and numbers yourself. The dua, that's authentic. It's in the sunnah. When you do it, how many times you do it, you've made all that up. So that is an additional bid'ah, as they say. Annexed. You've annexed, you've added something extra onto the basis that was legitimate. The first type of bid'ah, there is no basis to begin with, baseless something completely new. The second type, there is a basis, but you've done something to it, specified times and dates and other things that have made it into a bid'ah the way you're doing it now. So the point here is the shaykh said, the highness of Allah in his names and attributes even the people of innovation will accept that in their limited understanding and acceptance of the attributes. They'll say, yes, the attributes of Allah are perfect and the most high. But even there, he gives an example of how they may still end up deviating on that because they don't know how to understand that principle properly. So the point we were discussing though was the highness of Allah in three regards Three main regards, sometimes they may break it down into the fourth. The highness of Allah in His essence, the highness of Allah in His names and attributes, and the highness of Allah in His power and might and majesty over His creation. So then, he mentions, أَمَّا عُلُوُّ الذَّاتِ فَإِنَّهُ عِنْدَ السَّلَفِ فَقَطْ أما أهل التحريف والتعطيل أو أهل الحلول فلا Allah being the most high in his essence that Allah is above the creation that is with the salaf أهل السنة but as for the people of distortion and rejection and the people of الحلول who are the people of Al-Hulul? They are the ones who believe basically that Allah is uh, that Allah is basically present in every time and space. Allah is present everywhere. The basic concept of fi kulli makan. That Allah is everywhere. In every entity, in every essence, Allah is everywhere. So this is the belief of some of the people of innovation. The Sufiya, they have this type of belief, Wahdatul Wujud, that the creation and the creator, they are all one entity. They are all one entity. Wahdatul Wujud. 
the creator and the creation all one entity but then al-shaykh al-islam ibn taymiyyah said as well for those who believe that allah is everywhere fi kulli makan shaykh al-islam said ask them what do you say about for example the toilets what do you say about the rubbish dumps the garbage the bins what do you say about this dirty place that dirty place all these dirty places what do you say you could even say about some of these streets over here what do you say about these places then they're gonna start saying okay that's an exemption that's an exemption okay that's an exemption that's an exemption that then Shaykh al-Islam said you could sit there and make a million exemptions from this earth how many dirty places on this earth rubbish dumps this that the other you're gonna sit there making a million exemptions a million exemptions what's happened to Allah is every place now every place except a million places he said your aqidah is all wrong what is this Allah is in every place but then now you have to make so many exemptions there's hardly any point you saying Allah is in every place in your aqidah then on top of that as well there's many others we've discussed this before in detail anyway those people who claim that Allah is everywhere this is just a basic thing when they claim that Allah is everywhere the scholars they say logically in your mind there are three levels either somebody is below you or somebody is equal to you or somebody is above you somebody below you in any human nature of any culture is that dignity and respect and honor or is that something recognized across the cultures of the world generally that this is degrading and below that's what it is so could you ever say that Allah is in that position impossible how can you equal could you ever say that Allah is equal to you where you are Allah is everywhere they say so equal to you on your level can you say you this miskeen creation are on an equal level with Allah impossible again how can you say that the only possibility even simply intellectually is that your creator must be above you how can you say your creator is below you or even equal to you miskeen creation surely your Lord is above you clear then on top of that these people who say Allah is everywhere they said the correct aqeedah Allah is everywhere you guys are wrong you Salafi say this that the other Allah is above Allah is everywhere when they make dua when they make dua where do they put their hands when they make in dua they say Allah is everywhere the aqeedah Allah is everywhere but every single one of them when they make dua their hands go only one direction Allah is everywhere then why do they not make dua down to the left here angled up that way 45 degrees this way every time when they make dua the dua is up there's no dua here here behind your back Allah is everywhere the dua is in one direction so the reality is as is the aqeedah of Ahlul Sunnah that Allah is above the creation separate and distinct from this creation ba'in separate and distinct from this creation so then it says قَالَ جَلَّ ذِكْرُ مَنْ ذَا الَّذِي يَشْفَعُ عِنْدَهُ إِلَّا بِإِذْنِهِ 
Who is it that can intercede with Allah except with His permission? This topic of intercession, intercession, is it legitimate or not? Intercession, is it legitimate or not? It's legitimate. Intercession is legitimate, going to the graves and calling upon the dead. So now it's not legitimate. Not that type. So intercession, we spoke briefly before, it means to double up, somebody is speaking on your behalf, intermediary, middleman. Is that concept legitimate Islamically? Can you have a middleman, an intermediary, an intercession? Yes, with the conditions. No, if it's without the conditions. From the conditions of the Shafa'a Muthbata, the intercession that is established and proven in the Quran, how many conditions are there? Two? Three? Anybody want to say four? Two, what are two then? What are three? Who said it? The Shafi' wal Mashfu'. So it's two, it's three, it's the same thing. That there must be the even the permission of Allah. And secondly, some scholars may just make it point number two and that's it. That Allah must be pleased with the one making the intercession and the one who the intercession is being made for. Both of those individuals. The one who the intercession is being made for and the one who is making it on that person's behalf. Both of those must be from the ones Allah is pleased with. And the meaning of Allah being pleased with them, Allah, i.e. that they are people of Tawheed, they are Muhyiddin, they must be people of Tawheed. A person upon shirk is not somebody who Allah is pleased with. A person of Tawheed is the one whom Allah is pleased with. So it must be with the permission of Allah and it must be that Allah is pleased with the one making the intercession and the one who it's being made for. That they are both people of Tawheed. In that case, these conditions, you see them applicable. For example, we've studied it many times on the Day of Judgment. The intercession that is going to occur on the Day of Judgment. How the Prophet ﷺ is going to intercede for this Ummah. When the Prophet ﷺ goes to the throne of Allah. And then he prostrates. As it mentions in the narration. And then... The, uh, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives permission to the Prophet and says, Irfa' ra'saka, ishfa' tushaffa'. Now raise your head and seek the intercession you'll be given. So this is the ithn, this is the permission from Allah for that intercession to now occur. 
But as for what people do now, when they go to the graves and to the dead, and even if it's to the graves of the prophets and the messengers, and they seek intercession like the CV with the photographs last week, those types of intercession are false, rejected, impermissible, haram. Because there is no permission from Allah for you to go to the dead and ask them to intercede for you with Allah, ask them to be intermediaries for you with Allah. There is no permission from that, from Allah for that. And neither is that an act of tawheed in the first place. Allah has told you to call upon Him directly. To call upon Him directly with your dua. Not to call upon the dead to take your dua to Allah. But this is exactly how the people of innovation teach their followers. This is exactly what they teach them. They say, you, you're a miskin. You're a miskin. How many sins do you do? How many sins do you do? How many wrongs do you do? You're barely practicing properly. Where are you compared to the likes of the Sahaba? Where are you compared to the likes of the prophets and the messengers? You're a nobody. How's your dua going to be answered? What you need to do is go to the grave of the great awliya. Go to their graves. Or when you're in Medina, go to the grave of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, And make your dua asking these awliya or these prophets, whoever's grave you're at, asking them to take your dua to Allah. That way, there's a chance of it being answered if they take your dua for you to Allah. You make your dua miskin like you, how's your dua going to be answered? You have to go via these great awliya. They take your dua to Allah, then it will be answered. That's what they tell them. And that's what they believe. And that is exactly what the mushrikun at the time of the Prophet wasallam used to believe and do. They used to believe that these idols of ours are just going to bring us closer to Allah. We ask them, they are intermediaries between us and Allah. So that is a false aqidah and that is the false intercession that is not acceptable and it is shirk. Then, وَقَالَ مَسْرُوقٌ عَنِ بِنْ مَسْعُودٍ إِذَا تَكَلَّمَ اللَّهُ بِالْوَحِي when Allah speaks with the revelation, سَمِعَ أَهْلُ السَّمَاوَاتِ شَيْئًا The inhabitants of the heavens hear something. فَإِذَا فُزِّعَ عَنْ قُلُوبِهِمْ وَسَكَنَ السَّوْتِ So then eventually when that fear exits from their hearts after hearing that, and the, the sound it calms down, عَرَفُوا أَنَّهُ الْحَقِّ They know that it was the truth. وَنَادَوْ مَاذَا قَالَ رَبُّكُمْ So then they call out, what did your Lord say? The angels call out, what did your Lord say? قَالُوا الْحَقِّ They say it was the truth. In some of the other versions of the narration, it mentions the sound that is created or the sound that emanates, uh, the sound which they hear like the chains upon the rocks when that when that revelation is being spoken or said and then this fear it occurs on their hearts this ter- this fright 
that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking with an affair and then eventually when it is calmed then they say what did your Lord say and then they say he said the truth وفي نسخة ثانية عرفوا أنه الحق من ربهم هذا القول عن ابن مسعود معلق في البخاري لكنه مجزوم به then قوله قال سمعت النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم يقول يحشر الله العباد فيناديهم بصوت يسمعه من بعد كما يسمعه من قرب أنا الملك أنا الديان remember all of these evidences and everything we're discussing it is an affirmation of what was the chapter heading the speech of Allah and that the speech of Allah is with sound and letters that are heard and understood that was the context of our discussion here the context of the discussion regarding the speech of Allah that it is with letters and sounds that are heard so there it was to say that the angels hear they hear that speech of Allah they hear that sound when Allah speaks with the revelation here another one another evidence that when Allah resurrects his servants then he calls out to them with a voice that those who are far hear it just like those who are close Allah calls out to them with a voice and those who are at a distance hear it just as those who are close by hear it so again this clear affirmation that Allah speaks with that sound that is heard, that, that voice that is heard. هذا الحديث هو الحديث المشهور الذي ارتحل له جابر بن عبد الله مسيرة شهر. This narration is the famous narration where uh, when you look at in the chapters of الرحلة في طلب العلم Traveling for the sake of knowledge. In the books when they talk about the chapters of traveling for the sake of knowledge as they used to do in the times of the Salaf and the scholars after that all throughout history up until our day now traveling for knowledge it is known and it is mentioned regarding talabul ilm that the methodology was firstly you would seek knowledge from the most they, they used to say the most qualified and superior individual of your uh, balad as they would say your land firstly this is this this was their methodology this was the methodology of the salaf and the imams in seeking knowledge from a young age first priority was go to the most qualified in your land in your area and seek knowledge from him then after that came the stage of traveling out to other lands to other mashaykh so then they would go out and they would travel to distant lands and sit with the mashaykh of those lands and learn from them then travel out to another land and sit with the mashaykh of those lands and learn from them so initially from the scholars of their own land and the most superior of them and then after that 
going to the scholars of the other lands. They would travel. In the time of the Salaf, there are examples mentioned, and this is one of them, when it's mentioned that Jabir, he, Jabir ibn Abdullah, radiallahu anhu, traveled a distance of a month. And we're not talking about a month in a car, a distance of a month traveling in the deserts on barefoot and on camels and horses in those days. Traveling for a month through the deserts on the horses and walking and camels, etc. Until he came to Abdullah ibn Unais. And he had traveled all of that distance and he got to Abdullah ibn Unais for the sake of one single hadith. One single hadith. He got there and he said to him, I have heard that you narrate from the Prophet X, Y, and Z this hadith, this one that we just mentioned now, that you are the last person who knows of it. So then he went there and he got that hadith from him. One hadith, and that was it. His whole journey of a month to get there, month to get back, for the sake of one hadith. And there are other examples of that too. It's not like these days that people cannot travel out, not just for one hadith, but for a full lecture. And not even for a full lecture, maybe there's a full event going on for the day. And people cannot travel out for that now. That will be hundreds of hadith. Hundreds of hadith and ayat and narrations. And the people do not travel out for those types of events or lectures, even in their home cities, let alone traveling out. In their home cities, the people do not travel anymore. Too cold, stay at home, go on to mix LR. As Sheikh Zaid, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentioned, if somebody is genuinely unable to physically go and attend the classes, genuinely, genuinely unable, for some reason, whatever reason, cannot get to the class physically, then of course you can listen online and it is hoped you will get the same reward as the one physically sitting in the class attending. That is for the one who sincerely, genuinely couldn't make it. Not laziness, couldn't be bothered, whatever else. He wanted to, but something genuinely stopped him. He wanted to, prepared and ready, he goes outside, and then he sees somebody has stolen his tires off his car, like they used to in the olden days. So now, he's stuck. He can't get anybody else to pick him up, nothing happening. Stuck, genuinely cannot make it, no public transport at that time, whatever. So now he listens online. Sheikh Zaid said, inshallah, he gets the reward of the one physically in the class. And we know about all of those narrations of the virtues of the ones who attend these gatherings of knowledge and how the, the tranquility descends upon them, the mercy of Allah upon them, the angels cover them, all of those things that are mentioned about the virtues of the gatherings of knowledge. Inshallah, the one genuinely who couldn't make it, genuinely was prevented from being able to come and so they had to, by no choice, forced to listen only online, then inshallah, Shaykh Zaid said, they get the same reward of being there in person. 
But as for the people who are lazy and can't be bothered, so they only listen online, then they are missing out. It's a, it's a big deficiency for those who are able to come, but they choose to stay at home and listen online. If you're able to come, you're able to travel, then you should do so. People, they travel around for their worldly affairs. Maybe a person travels 30 miles every day to work and back. Maybe every week 200 miles just getting to work and back. Maybe a family wants to go shopping and it's got to be a particular supermarket to get those particular organic goods and everything else. So they travel five miles to the other side of their city to that supermarket. Five miles there, five miles back. Ten miles to pick up those few organic bits and bobs that your local supermarket doesn't have. People, they travel about. They do their thing. But when it comes to classes, sit at home and turn on the mix LR, you are depriving yourself of a huge amount that you would achieve being here in person. So for those who are genuinely unable, then that is the best you can do and your reward is there. For those who are able but choose not to, then you're depriving yourself a lot by only listening online. If you're able to travel, you should. As the brothers and the sisters, they travel. They come from the different places and the different areas, traveling miles and distances to attend the gatherings of knowledge. And that is something suitable and beneficial for a person to do. What better time and what better way to use your time than to sit in the car and to use that fuel in your car to get to a class of knowledge to listen to the ayat and to listen to the ahadith. That is a better usage of your vehicle and your money and your fuel and your time than using it for everything else you use it for. So a person should strive in that. Striving to attend in person rather than mix LR if you have the choice. If you don't, then you do what you can do. And as for the third category that is rarely mentioned, as we said, neither in person nor mix LR, then may Allah aid them. May Allah aid them and bring them to some sort of sense in realizing that you can't live your life, your whole life, with no talabul ilm. You can't live your life with no knowledge. There is a minimum level of knowledge that everybody has to have, as the scholars have mentioned. There's a minimum level everybody has to learn. The minimum level is what? The level that you need to be able to worship Allah properly. If you don't have that minimum level, it means you're not worshiping Allah properly. Somebody says to you, how do you make wudu? You cannot say, you cannot say, Akhi, I'm not a sheikh, I'm not a talib al-ilm. Go and ask the students of knowledge. Go and ask the mashaykh. Why are you asking me? I do, I'm, not, I'm not anybody knowledgeable. He's asking you, how do you make wudu? You can't say to him, I'm not a sheikh. You need to go and ask somebody knowledgeable. How are you making wudu every day then? He comes and asks you, tell me how to pray. You can't say to him, Akhi, I'm not a sheikh. Go to a sheikh, he'll explain to you how to pray. How are you praying every day then? These are aspects of knowledge that are a minimum every Muslim needs to have. He comes to you and asks you, tell me about Tawheed. You can't say to him, I can't explain those things. Go to a student. How can you not explain them? Don't you understand? 
what Tawheed is and what the basics are. So this is a knowledge that is important and it is required. Here, look, they traveled a month for the sake of a single hadith. One hadith. It's mentioned uh, regarding, I think, Uqbat ibn Amir, that he was in Mecca and he discovered when he grew old that his wife that he was married to, he and his wife, and I think it was Uqbat ibn Amr, you'll have to double check, that he and his wife, both of them had been breastfed by the same nanny when they were younger. Of course, if you've both been breastfed by the same woman, then you are not allowed to marry each other. They had married not knowing that both of them when they were young had been breastfed by the same woman, by the same nanny. So then when he discovered this, because one day that woman, that nanny as we say, she noticed and she came across them and said, you two when you were younger, both of you are used to breastfeed you. So when he found out, it's mentioned, instantly dropped everything, got onto his horse and rode to Medina. Instantly, in that moment, as soon as she told him this, rode on his horse, Makkah to Medina, Manchester to London, that's the distance, on his horse straight away. Got to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, O Messenger of Allah, this is the situation I find myself in. This is the discovery that I made. This is what we've been told by the elderly lady now, the nanny. So then the Prophet ﷺ, it mentions in the narration, he said, Kayfa waqad qil. Like, what can be said after the ruling has been given? Like, what can I say now? What can be said? And the ruling has been given. But the point is, look at how they used to travel for knowledge. Not, okay, let's investigate this, that, the other next week. Instantly, onto his riding animal and he went. In other narrations, they mention, similar to the one of Jabir ibn Abdullah and Abdullah ibn Anais, they mention other narrations where the Salaf, they would go traveling for three months at a time to get to another shaykh to learn a hadith. And it's mentioned in some of them how they would travel on their donkeys and their horses in the deserts weeks at a time getting to a particular shaykh. In one of the narrations it mentions he gets there, he gets there, he's on his donkey or his horse, he comes across the shaykh that he did not even get off his donkey or his horse. He came across, I say Sheikh, but the narrator, he came across the other narrator that he wanted this hadith from. He saw that narrator, he asked him, that narrator gave him that hadith. He didn't even get off his horse, he turned around and went back. He said, that's it. That was my purpose of the visit to this place. That hadith, that narration, I got it. No need to get off now, tourism. That's it. Turned around, didn't even get off, started making his way back. When you read the biographies of the scholars, mentions in many of their biographies when they used to travel out for Hajj and Umrah. You remember in those days, you'll know how it used to be. Hajj and Umrah a thousand years ago, on their donkeys, on their horses, from the lands of Iraq and here and there and everywhere else, traveling, going down to Mecca and Medina. This used to be how in our days, we think about our national conferences and things. 
That's how it used to be. They all used to travel out and the big mashayikh, the big scholars and narrators from the different lands, they would all meet up in Hajj and Umrah. And so the people, they used to go for Hajj and then end up staying there for two or three months with the various mashayikh here and there and everything else, learning the narrations, the, the chains and the hadith, and then come back after two or three months of being there. So, traveling for knowledge, it is a chapter scholars write in their books. In the books, you get chapters called the chapter of traveling to seek knowledge. So, that was mentioned here with this hadith that Allah, when He raises up the people on that day and He calls out to them with a voice that those who are far hear it just as those who are near. That this hadith was the example of Jabir traveling for a month to get that narration. They mention a few other points, and the ulul isnad one is a good one. We talk about traveling for the sake of knowledge. You need to travel somewhere to seek knowledge. Imagine now the Salaf, this is another level. The Salaf used to travel for knowledge that they already had. How come? Because in the olden days, in those days, the chain of narration was very important. Chain of narration, the way they used to narrate hadith, if you read the books of the scholars from a thousand years ago, all of their books, every hadith, has the full chain of narration with it that I narrated from such and such, an fulan, an fulan, an fulan, all the way to the Prophet That's how they used to narrate. So sometimes there may be a shaykh in those early days, he knows about a hadith like this one here now. He has heard it from his shaykh, who heard it from his shaykh, who heard it from his shaykh, who heard it from the, and uh, let's say that's the companion who heard it from the Prophet So this narrator has heard from his sheikh, that's number one sheikh, then from that sheikh above him, number two sheikh, then from the companion is next, and then from the Prophet He wants to narrate that same hadith with a smaller chain of narration. Because what's better? For me to say, I heard some news via him, via him, via him, via him, via him, via him, via him who was there. Or for me to say, I heard this news via him who was there. Which one is more solid? For me to go right to the source or via him, via him. Only two people to the source of the one who saw it rather than 10 people to the source of the one who saw it. So that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to have their hadith with the shortest chains of narration. So if they knew a hadith via four people to the Prophet ﷺ, but then they heard there's a shaykh alive somewhere still, who is higher up in the chain, he narrates directly from the companion from the Prophet ﷺ. So if they can get to that shaykh and hear the hadith from him, It'll just be the shaykh, then the, the, the tabi'i, then the companion, then the prophet. So there'll be just three people between him, or two people, 
between him and the Prophet ﷺ, as opposed to four people between him and the Prophet ﷺ, for the same exact hadith. They would go traveling for the sake of being able to meet that shaykh and get the hadith from there so that it would be a more direct chain of narration. They would travel for those reasons. Nowadays, when we compare, like we said, let alone that, knowledge that people don't even have in the first place, they don't travel for. Let alone the Salaf traveling for knowledge that they already had, just to make it even better the way that they had it. So it's, a, it's an important chapter, it's a good chapter to look into. When you read about the Salaf and their biographies and how they used to travel for knowledge, they have that famous narration about one of them, either from the Salaf or the Imams just soon after the time of the Salaf. They give an example of a, of a man, a student of knowledge. He, uh, he was seeking knowledge and everything. And like we said, they used to seek knowledge from the scholars of their lands and then travel out, etc. And one of the other things that used to occur, which was much more rare, but maybe a scholar from another land might happen to be visiting your land for some reason. And that was much more rare, but maybe sometimes. They say on this occasion there was this student of knowledge, and he got married. Mentions in that biography, he got married. When he got married, on his day of marriage, the day he got married, that day news came to him that such and such big scholar from such and such a land is coming over close by to their land somewhere. So it's mentioned in that story, in one of the biographies, that he said to his wife of a few hours now, he said to her, my apologies, but I'm going to have to leave you tonight, I'm uh, tied up. <laughs> so he had to leave that night of the marriage, that day he's just married, and he said to his wife, such and such a scholar's coming, I have to go. And he left her and he mentions, she's the one writing it in the biography or in the poem or something. She says, he left me in tears to go to the sheikh on the day of the marriage. But this is how they were. When it comes to knowledge, there is no messing around. There is no shortcomings with that knowledge. We've done those examples of Umar ibn al-Khattab. He used to be the shepherd at one time. Him and his neighbor looking after the sheep. Now the people do easy jobs sitting in the office in AC, everything else or working with the sheep, and they used to take turns, him and his neighbor, so that they could carry on going and sitting with the Prophet So a person needs to focus on that. Needs to focus on this issue of knowledge, uh, and the importance of gaining it for yourselves and your families. And do not be from those who don't seem to realize the importance of it. Or those, and it happens everywhere, all over the place, and it's something which is not unusual to any particular place. How brothers, they may be at a stage where they are striving, and then stages come when they disappear, and they are no longer attending gatherings, no longer attending classes. Happens everywhere, but it's something that you need to work on amongst yourselves. If you notice that there's a particular person used to attend regularly, and now all of a sudden disappeared, nobody's seeing him anymore, then do something, do some... Uh, speak with him, give him advice, find out what's going on, why is he no longer striving. Sometimes a person's iman may go down, maybe having some difficulty in his life at that time, maybe some reasons behind it, maybe just pure laziness has set in, 
So try to encourage and bring those types of people back in, those who used to be striving from the brothers and then they disappear. So it's an important thing to take note of. We digressed slightly from the point, but it was a point in the book. It wasn't an absolute digression. So we'll leave it at that point for today then. We'll carry on with the next section from next time, inshallah ta'ala, which is basically almost the next hadith now. We'll start with next time. Still about the angels and the revelation when they hear Allah speaking and how they strike their wings when they hear that and the sound that they hear. So we'll discuss that in the next session, inshallah ta'ala, next week after the Isha prayer. Anything to add or anything before we conclude? In that case, next week then after Isha.